Uh, turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. And um, I'm thankful for Bruce last week. Uh, uh, he's uh, Anyone who takes Acts chapter 2 and preaches on 41 verses is a hero, in, in my opinion. So I appreciate Bruce coming and doing some heavy lifting last week. Uh, that's a lot. And uh, I appreciate him and uh, loving us and ministering to us in that way. Uh, today we're going to come down to the last few verses here, 42 through 47. This is a hard message to bring together. Not in the sense that there's anything really exegetically challenging in this passage. There's really not. But it's just, I think part of it, it's so obvious and uh, so simple. And part of it is, I don't know if you remember back, just about five years ago, uh, Jeff and I, we, we preached out of this passage and we did it in like four or five Sundays. Like this, what we're going to do today, we did in like four or five Sundays, and we just preached on each of these components. That's still fresh enough in my mind where I'm trying to edit out, like, oh, I want to talk about this, this. I'm like, we can't. So I think it was challenging in that regard. But I think the most challenging thing was the conviction that it brought to me. Uh, This passage really doesn't need a lot of preaching, to be honest with you. If you read it with open hearts and open eyes, it, it convicts you. It should. It convicted me. And uh, part of me is like, let's just get up here and read this passage 80 times for the sermon. <laughs> Say, amen, close our Bibles, and hopefully we go out just uh, challenged. And uh, so there's a very convicting passage. And one of the reasons why it's convicting, I, I think, you know, culturally, where we've come to view the church and the way we've come to view the church and engage with the church, if we're honest, in a lot of ways, we're, we're so far removed from the way they did uh, in the early church. And I think that this is a model for us. It's not prescriptive necessarily, but it is descriptive, and I think the model is given here. This is how the church should function. This is how the church should prioritize. Uh, the people in the church should prioritize each other in the gathering together and the word of God and so on. So it was hard for me to put together. I'm like, eh, I'm coming up with points. I'm like, I don't want to say that because I have to, I have to live this out. And uh, so we're going to pray the Spirit of God just convicts us and does this thing in our lives today. So let's read this together. Acts chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles, to the apostles' teaching, I'm sorry, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. God, we just pray that you take your word this morning, that you impress it on our hearts, that you challenge us, convict us. Um, God, this example uh, of our early brothers and sisters in, in, in the way they... Uh, committed themselves to your word and to each other is is a challenge to us, God, as we continue on what they began, what you began through them, better said. So God, I pray that we would learn from this today. I pray that your spirit would take your truth, not my words, but that you would guide and direct and take your truth, your words, and implant them in our hearts, change us, the praise of your glory, the furtherance of the church's ministry on this earth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So yeah, sometimes we miss the obvious, don't we? Or at least we don't live out the obvious. I came across this list someone sent me a while back. Um, these people who miss the obvious. Uh, this one person relates the story. I handed the teller at my bank a withdrawal slip for $400. I said, may I have large bills, please? She looked at me and said, I'm sorry, sir, all the bills are the same size. 
when I got up off the floor, I explained it to her. When my husband and I arrived at an automobile dealership, this is a different story, to pick up our car, we were told the keys had been locked inside of it. We went to the service department and found a mechanic working feverishly to unlock the driver's side door. As I watched from the passenger side, I instinctively tried the door handle and discovered that it was unlocked. Hey, I announced to the technician, it's open. His reply, I know, I already got that side. That was at a Ford dealership in Canton, Mississippi, by the way. So don't go to that one. Um, We had to have our garage door repaired. The Sears repairman told us that one of our problems was that we did not have a large enough motor on the opener. I thought for a minute and said that we had the largest one Sears made at the time, a half horsepower. He shook his head and said, lady, you need a quarter horsepower. I responded that half was larger than a quarter. He said, no, it's not. Four is larger than two. We haven't used Sears Repair ever since. My daughter went to a local Taco Bell and ordered a taco. She asked the person behind the counter for minimal lettuce. He said he was sorry, but they only had iceberg lettuce. And then, uh, here's the last one here. I worked with an individual who plugged her power strip into itself. (laughs) For the sake of her life, couldn't understand why her system would not turn on. This was a a deputy in a county sheriff's office, no less. So, uh, missing the obvious. This passage is kind of like that. You can read it and kind of miss the obvious. It's screaming at us. Here's the example. Here's what you should do. Jesus passed the baton, right? Bruce talked about this last week. Jesus passing the, the baton to his disciples. And the rest of Acts shows us uh, what that looks like. And really, at the end of the day, it's not rocket science. Again, there's there's nothing really new to learn here in Acts 2, uh, you know, 42 to 47. And sometimes, you know, as as, as a preacher, when you're preaching, you're like, oh, I got to find some creative way to put this. I got to find something new here that that maybe we haven't heard before that, you know, instruct us and enlighten us. And, And you're reading this passage going, no, there's really nothing new here. When we take the baton from Jesus, this is what it looks like. It's just a radical reorientation to the significance of the body of believers. That's what this example is calling us to. So there's two important links that we need to keep in mind as we talk about these verses today. First of all, again, remember, this all flows out. Everything I'm reading here, verse 42 on, all flows out of the, from the Pentecost events, right? The coming of the spirits, In a matter of a day, the church goes from 120 people to 3,120 people. It's a massive church growth there, right? But here's the thing. The reign of the Spirit is what caused this. And it was the reign of the Spirit that led to several basic practices that this church took on that led to its effectiveness, to its authenticity. But again, we have to link these things, these characteristics, back to the presence of the Spirit. The Spirit's presence, the Spirit's control is crucial, right? Here's why. Because when I read this, I know me, I can't live this out on my own. I'm too selfish. I'm too short-sighted. I'm too pragmatic. So when I read about what the church is doing, I read it, I have to understand the Spirit must be at work in me and in us for us to live this out, right? This passage, too, it's also a link back to Peter's sermon. You had the coming of the Spirit. You had the sermon. So in verse 37, you have the people responding. What must we do then with this, right? And Peter tells them, 
Believe, be baptized. And in verse 47, it says that's what they did. Those who received the word, they were baptized and they were added. That word added is, is significance. It's membership. Baptism was membership. They were counted. They were brought in to the church. So again, what we're reading in verses 42 through 47 is just an ongoing outflow, response to the Spirit's coming and Peter's sermon. By the way, can you imagine what that baptism service was like in Jerusalem <laughs> that day? 3,000 people getting baptized. They only had like two pools in Jerusalem where they could have done that. Must have been a line. Talk about a testimony, right? Um, what a day. But that's the coming of the Spirit. That's response to the preaching of God's Word. So that's one link. The other link, and I love this. The scripture, again, is just so awesome when you see the threads, right? We talked about this a while back or a couple weeks ago with the, the Holy Spirit hovering at Pentecost. One of the themes in Acts was the, the presence of the Spirit. And, and throughout the redemptive history, when the Spirit hovers, there's, there's an incredible work that follows. You know, the Spirit hovered over the deep creation. The Spirit hovers over uh, Mary. Uh, Jesus is born. The Spirit hovers over Jesus at his, his baptism. And you have his incredible life and ministry. And now the Spirit hovers again over the church as he comes upon his followers at, at Pentecost. There's these links, right? And, and part of what we're seeing here, I believe, is another link. Everything we see here in verses 42 through 47, all these characteristics and practices of the church, this was all what Israel was supposed to be. The church is living out what Israel was supposed to be. And we, we talked about this link, right? The 12 when, when Peter was so passionate, we have to replace Judas, right? That number 12, I believe, was significant. This is a reconstituted people of God, the 12 tribes, now the 12 apostles, the foundation of this church. This is the people of God. So you have the 12 in the early church there under the Spirit's control in this New Testament community of new Israel in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, like Joel 2, like Bruce unfolded for us last week. And now we're living out what the people of God were supposed to be. And this makes so much sense. You look at these characteristics, and everything in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, all the instructions to Israel and what they were supposed to be and what was supposed to characterize them, we're seeing these in the early church, right? They were supposed to prioritize the law, follow God, walk in God's ways, right? Being devoted to the apostles' teaching fulfills that. Care for one another. How many of the Levitical laws had to do with justice and caring for one another? Remember Ruth gleaning on the outside of Boaz's field? That was a provision in the, in the law to take care of one another, to take care of the widows and orphans. So the church is coming, and they're radically fulfilling God's purpose for his people and what they're supposed to be in uh, the world. That's significance. We read here this renewed society that I believe Joel envisioned in, in, in Joel chapter 2, the message that Peter preached on Pentecost. Those are two important links back. So we've got to start with an important word here then. What characterized this church and what caused it to be these things? And you have to start with this word devoted. Devoted. The Greek lexicon definition of this word is to adhere, to persist in, to hold fast, to continue to persevere. So I want you to think for a moment, not in a negative way, I want you to think for a moment, what, what's your thing? What is it that you're devoted to? What is it that you love? What is it that you make time for? You know, for me in the fall, I make time to watch college football on Saturdays. And, what, and I'm aware what time it starts, and either I'm watching it at that time or I'm making sure that it's recorded, which is actually better, because then I can take the five hours that the game takes and I can watch it in 15 minutes, you know, and skip all the commercials, right? But I make sure that that happens. I'm going to watch my football team play, Right? Uh, uh, working out, right? I, I make sure, you know, I orient my life. I make sure that that happens. 
You know, what is it for you? What's your hobby? What's the thing? I, I make sure I give time to this. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but I'm think, saying, like, think about the way you interact with that thing, the priority you give it, how you move heaven and earth to make it happen. That is what devoted means. That is how they saw the church. That's how they felt about the church and their brothers and sisters in Christ. And they made it happen. They were devoted to it. <laughs> mentioned being at Freeze Out last week. Uh, you know, Derek Sturman, he's not here today. Derek Sturman, dude's a tank. You see Derek? And um, he, he works out, he lifts weights, and he's there at Freeze Out in, in his cabin. And he's like on his bunk and he's like pulling himself up because he can't work out in the gym on Friday, right? And, he, and um, you know, it, it, that's devotion. I, I still got to get a workout in because I can't be in the gym, and, but I'm going to do it here. You know, and he's throwing other middle schoolers around the room to, you know, um, he's bench pressing Lincoln. He's, no, he went. Um, but that's devotion. I gotta, I gotta make sure this happens. So what is it? So think about that and then say, man, let's appropriate that to the body of Christ. That kind of love, that kind of commitment. Caring for your lawn. By the way, if you're buying a house, never buy a house next door to someone who's devoted to their lawn. I'd, my lawn, I think, looks okay. My lawn is an average lawn, but next to Carlene's lawn, it looks like garbage. She's devoted to her lawn. She's out there with tweezers pulling out, and I'm like, oh, my word, my yard violets are spreading over in her backyard, and that's not a good thing, right? And she's coming over. She's like, I think you have moles. I'm like, I know. I'm sharing them with you, you know, pet, you know. <laughs> uh, devotion. Am I devoted? Am I devoted? John Stott writes this. If the church is central to God's purpose, as seen in both history and the gospel, it must surely also be central to our lives. How can we take lightly what God takes so seriously? How dare we push to the circumference what God has placed at the center? So marks of an authentic church. What is it that we must be devoted to? We must be devoted to teaching and learning. We see this right away in verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What did they teach? They taught everything that Jesus had commanded them. This was the Great Commission. Make disciples. Teach everything that I have commanded you. Daryl Bach, in his commentary, says this. This probably includes all kinds of instruction, like we see in the Gospels, in the Epistles. Ethical and practical teaching and a grounding in the central promise God had given Jesus. They were teaching. Read the Gospels. Whatever Jesus was teaching his disciples in the Gospels, that's what they were teaching. They probably involved some explanation of the transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament, Jesus has fulfillment of the Old Testament. They taught these things. And we'll see in a couple chapters, here we get to chapter 6, that the church leaders felt the weight of this. They understood that their primary responsibility as the leaders of Christ's church was to devote themselves to prayer and the preaching of God's word. Devoted to the apostles' teaching. This is a foundational characteristic in an authentic New Testament church. We see this, right? Places like Titus 2. Paul tells Timothy, uh, Titus to teach sound doctrine. 1 Timothy 6.2, he tells Timothy to teach. Again, referring to sound doctrine. 2 Timothy 4.2, Paul's dying words to his protege, Timothy. He says to him, preach the word, Timothy. Preach the word. Right? The church has to be about good doctrine. And, and students and anybody, right? God moves you away. You get to college one day. God moves you to a job in another state. Listen, first and foremost, you look for a church that preaches God's word. First and foremost, 
You know, you can, you can like the music or whatever. You look for programs. Those are fine things to look for. But first and foremost, preaching in the Word. And if that's there, you can kind of deal with the rest of it. Devoted to teaching, though. Preaching God's Word. Are you devoted to it? We have the apostles' teaching available to us today, right? It's right, it's right here. It's right here. We have the apostolic witness to the life of Jesus Christ right here. And our inspired scripture. So again, I ask you, are, do, are you devoted to it? Are you devoted to learning it? We have so many means available to us today, right? We have the church gathered. We have books. We have podcasts. We have other forms of media. That said, the context here in Acts 2 is the preaching and teaching of the word in the context of the assembled church. This is a thing. That matters. Gathering, interacting, hearing the word of God proclaimed together. We're going to come back to that in a minute in verse 46 as far as gathering together. What Luke does here is he kind of restates in summary form or expanded form at the end of this passage everything he's stating here. So we're going to come back to that in a minute. But let's go back for a second and again ask, is learning God's word something that you are devoted to? Something that you prioritize? Colossians 3, 16 through 17, Paul says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. You, plural. He's talking to the church. Let the word of Christ dwell in you. 1 Peter 2.2, as newborn babes crave milk, we ought to crave the word of God in the same way. A little Merlin sitting down here in first service, right? (laughs) Angela understands what that means right now. (laughs) That baby wants milk. It's going to let you know when he wants milk. And, And that's how I should desire and crave and value the word of God. Why is this so crucial? Why is it so crucial? Because we live in a feelings-based, experience-oriented culture. And we need the solid foundation of the Word of God. We must be exposed to something that cuts through our feelings and our emotions and our experiences to say this is absolute truth. This is what we must root ourselves in. We need it because we have blind spots. I have blind spots. I have blind spots. My family has blind spots. Every family has blind spots. To not acknowledge that is is foolish. We have blind spots. I need the, the body, I need the word of God to speak to my blind spots so they can see. That's why it's crucial. Conditioning. Conditioning is a word that kept coming to my mind this week as I thought about devoting ourselves to teaching. I am conditioned by what I am devoted to. I am conditioned by what I am devoted to. So here's the thing, right? Daily exposure to the word, weekly, bi-weekly sitting with the body of Christ, hearing teaching, it's not always going to produce mind-blowing epiphany moments every time. In fact, it, probably more often than not, it won't. But here's the thing, it's still doing something. It's still equipping. It's still conditioning. It is affecting the way I think And hearing the preaching and teaching of God's word by others in the context of the church gathered is one of the most powerful ways that this happens. We understand this. Those of you who who practice, who train, you know, run, uh, work out. Again, you've heard me say, you don't walk out of most workouts going, that was the best workout ever. Most times you're walking out going, I slogged through that. That was miserable. Someone increased the weight of the bar and didn't tell me because I felt like garbage the whole time. Right? And we have those. You, you, you run. If you're a runner, there's some runs, right, you feel like, oh, that was awesome. There's some runs you're like, I want to die right now. Right? But here's the thing. 
I'm never going to have the great moments or the great performances if I don't let myself be conditioned by showing up every time and allow it to do something to me. It is changing me. It is making me stronger, faster, better, whatever. And the Word of God works the same way. This conditions me. This changes and affects how I think. I don't remember sermons from when I was a freshman in high school that Pastor Bill preached. I don't remember them. But they changed me. They affected me. They conditioned me. I don't remember the content of every prayer meeting I went to on Wednesday. I hated going to prayer meeting on Wednesday nights as a high school student in the summer in Massachusetts in an air-conditioned building. Like, I hated it. I didn't like it. I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world today because it conditioned me. It slowly built something in me, little by little, day after day, week after week, month after month. It changed me. We spend hours every week being educated by the world, media, teachers, bosses, entertainment, coaches, etc. We are fools if we don't think that that is not educating us in our kids. We're delusional if we don't think that that is shaping the way we think. Here's the thing, right? We do. We surrender too much. We don't make the word of God, the teaching of the apostles, a priority in our own lives. Even when we're with each other, when we're with our friends, we don't ask about what God is teaching them. We don't have that accountability. Our communications with one another, our conversations communicate that the weather or the economy or the NFC championship game are the most important things in our lives. We don't make sure that our kids are doing their devos, and we're not asking them what they read today. And do not, do not say, I'm not, I'm going to not force my kids to do their devos because I don't want them to grow up to hate the word of God. Don't say that. I make my kids do a hundred things they don't want to do every day. You do too. Right? So we're going to sit at the dinner table. I'm going to say, did you read your Bibles today? Did you do it? What did you get out of your devos? And some days, I'll be honest, I don't want to ask it because I didn't read mine. (laughs) But we have to make that a priority in our families. What are you doing? Make, make it happen. We have to prioritize it. We surrender by not gathering with the church. You have the same process I do. I can miss one here or there, and it's okay. And yeah, this isn't some legalistic thing like, yeah, you got to check off. This many makes you spiritual. No, that's not what I'm saying. But we don't realize the cumulative effects We miss a Wednesday night here, a Sunday there, thinking that it's not going to hurt us. But we don't realize that what is being proclaimed and taught has the power to impact far beyond today. I hate it when my kids aren't there because I'm like, they're never going to have a chance to hear Josh Pache teach on this again next week. They're missing something. They are missing something. Again, we let the world educate us for hours a week, but we pull back from the already scant exposure we all have to the word in the church gathered. And we wonder why our kids and why people walk away from the faith. Gathering regularly under the teaching of the word of God. It's not a guarantee. It's not a silver bullet. But here's the thing. I'm putting my kids and my family in the best possible place to succeed. Zach going to uh, batting practice for baseball. Is that going to guarantee he's going to hit 400 and be Ted Williams? No. But I can guarantee you this. If he never goes to batting practice, he doesn't have a shot at hitting anything. He may get lucky every once in a while, stick his bat out there and get hit by a baseball. But it's the same thing. Is coming to church all the time, hearing the teaching of the word. Is it a guarantee my kids are going to turn out and follow God? No, it's not a guarantee. But I tell you what, if I don't do it, their chances of following Christ and being faithful and understanding God's word are greatly diminished. If, if non-existent, right? 
I did a little math. I was kind of thinking through this. What does it look like here? You think about Forest Hills Baptist here, right? We have 52 Sundays a, week, a year, about 30 family nights, 8 to 10 fusion services, 9 to 10 lifeline services in the summer. It's about 100, give or take. And I started thinking, just kind of on average, you know, maybe if I miss 6 to 7 Sundays a year, I miss 6 to 7 family nights a year, miss 4 fusions, miss 5 lifelines, that's about 20, 25%. If I don't go to Lifeline at all, it, it's about 30%. Again, it's not about keeping track. And I, honestly, I feel, you feel kind of bad. I, like in the past, you're like, well, you're the pastor. You just want to see a lot of people. No, no. I, whatever. I just know that this is what's best for me, for you, that we gather, that we hear the word of God. I'm going to keep track. I have no idea how many kids show up on Wednesday night. People ask me, how many kids are you I'm like, I don't know. It's not about the numbers. It's about life change. You think about it, 30%. What if I miss 30% of the available weightlifting workouts that I have a year? 30%. I'm not going anywhere. And Josiah Roberts, Josiah Roberts, football coach up at Lowell, asked Josiah, I'm like, what if one of your kids came up to you and said, I'm going to miss 30% of the practices this football season? Would that fly? He's like, no. I'm like, well, what if the kid said, I can work out on my own at home. I can watch video. <laughs> like, no. You'd be a terrible teammate if you miss 30%. You're not going to get it. And yet we allow this to start building up and we start missing time together. It has an effect. It matters. Teaching must be central. Talk about God's word at home. Talk about what the sermon was about. Not because I preached it. I don't care who preaches it. Talk about it. Ask your kids what they got out of their, their hub group. What did you get out of your hub group? How are you going to apply it? Every once in a while you're going to hear this, well, it was boring. Well, maybe. I'm boring sometimes. Right? Maybe. But I know the people who are teaching my kids here, I know the truth. I know their hearts. The truth was still spoken. So my kids says it's boring. I'm like, well, that probably says more about you than about them. You should have listened. It's God's word being proclaimed. What did you get out of it? What are you going to do? Right? So you want to walk away with a simple application of today's sermon, and you're going to sit here and go, I can't believe we're paying you to proclaim this. Here it is. Simple. Read your Bibles. Go to church. There it is. Right? There it is. Devote yourself to the teaching of God's word. They devoted themselves to the fellowship. Fellowship. This is the word koinonia. It means association. Often it's used with the mutuality that takes place in a marriage relationship, the give and take of a marriage relationship. It indicates unity, participation, sharing. It has a wide interpretation. And here's the thing, and you see this here in the passage, it's not restricted just to the formal gathering of believers. All the things we read here, the the contributions, the table fellowship, the general friendship that took place, the unity, it was a way of life. Church isn't something I go to. Church is something that I am. It's a way of life. It's personal interactive character to our relationships. The church was never intended to be something that I show up for one Sunday morning a week to get my spiritual dosage for the week so that I can survive in the world wasn't intended to be that. It's much more than that. It's interacting. It's loving. It's caring. And here's the thing too. It's, it's doing all those things with people who I don't necessarily like or who don't think the same way as me or who I disagree with. It includes people who are different from me. Luke unpacks this a little bit more. What does this fellowship look like? He talks about the breaking of bread. The breaking of bread. Probably at some level is referring to the Lord's table. 
Most commentators say it's probably that, but it probably is, is broader than that as well. And remember back during this time, the Lord's table was generally part of a larger meal in the New Testament, like we're doing here in just a few minutes downstairs. But what's communicated here, and if you remember what meals were indicated in the ancient Near East, um, they were a big deal when, when you dined with one another. It was an intimate interaction. It indicated mutual acceptance. That's why people had a problem with Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners. It's, it's showing like, wow, wait a minute. <laughs> You're relating to them on a certain level. That's what characterized the early church. Like Olive Garden, right? When you're here, you're family. <laughs> sitting around. All these Italians, my brother-in-law, right? Sitting around talking for hours on. It's an event. Interaction. And you don't always like, get along. You don't always like each other. We're family though, right? We're getting along. We're eating together. That's what's portrayed here. Prayer. Their fellowship was characterized by the breaking of bread. It was characterized by prayers. The prayers. Probably indicated at some level there was some rope prayer that was going on there. Um, but, um, but they gathered together in prayer. Luke emphasizes throughout Acts, prayer as a part of community life. There's about 36 references to the word prayer, whether the noun or the verb, throughout the book of Acts. That's a significant amount particularly when you take out some of the large narratives. That's, that's a high concentration of this word. This is a community that seeks God's direction. This is a community that doesn't function on feelings or personal agendas. They seek God, and they do it corporately. Listen, corporate prayer is a thing. It matters. And some of you say, well, I don't know that it works. Well, how would you know? We don't do it enough, Right? But it's a thing. It matters. Something powerful happens when the people of God are together praying. It binds us together. It knits us together. And God does use it. Here, to show you, it's not, if you read Keith's email this week, if you get that, it's, this isn't just an Acts 2 thing. This came from Keith. Um, uh, this was a week ago. Last Sunday, we invited whoever wanted to come to uh, come out to come to the building. This is praying outside the new building that they're praying about getting. One of the reasons for this visit was that we wanted those in our church that work in construction to inspect the installations. After we did the inspection, a few questions arose about the air conditioning system. The questions had to do with how outdated they were and what would be involved in updating them. There's a big difference between updating existing installations and certifications and starting from scratch. We didn't get discouraged, but we needed some answers. I wish I had this picture. In the picture below, we are praying to the Lord. So here they are, all gathered outside of the, this is the building they're putting the bid on. And here's the church they're gathered, the Veritas Church. And in the picture below, we're praying to the Lord. You know we need some answers that we don't have about the state of these installations. We need your guidance. Keith writes, brothers and sisters, not even 10 seconds after we said amen, the person who managed the facility until December of 2018, Andrea was his name, appeared. I thought that the chief architect, Antonio, had called him, but no one had called him. He had stopped by by chance to exchange money at the bar near Spazio Aurora. He saw us praying there and approached. He was able to give us the answers we needed. Does anyone doubt that God answers prayer? Does God always work that way? No. But if we're never corporately praying, we're never going to see God work that way, right? This is a great example. Gathering together for prayer. You see throughout the book of Acts, when the church gathered for prayer, powerful things happened. They survived persecution. They grew. Saw God work. The effect of this devotion was awe. 
There was outward impact. People took notice. The awe happened. It's just like all, it's implying everyone, like the people in the church and outside of the church. This word means there's a careful, respectful, and even a bit of a nervous response by the outside community. Then you have these signs and wonders that were taking place uh, by the apostles as all this was unfolding. And what that was is the same thing in Jesus' ministry, that these miracles and these signs and wonders were validating ministry. These, these signs and wonders were validating the apostolic teaching, like this is the real deal. These signs and wonders were validating that the church is God's thing. This is God's idea. And we look back on it and we say, yes, what we are as we sit here today was validated by God himself. In the early days of our history, this is God's thing. This is God's idea. And if we live it out the way God intends us to, we too will bring an impact to the world around us. So then Luke kind of expands some of these things a little bit. He stated in his summary form at the beginning, he expands them a little bit. We must be characterized by unity, togetherness, and mutual caring. So in verses 44 through 45, he unpacks a little bit more what this devotion looks like. In verse 44, he says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Stop after those first four words. All who believed. Believed in what? Maybe better said, believed in who? Right? It's Jesus. All who believed in Jesus. Right? Here's the thing. Jesus is the center. Jesus is the unifying and motivating center of our Christian fellowship. Jesus is the center of our mission. Jesus is why I surrender Jesus is why I give of myself. Jesus is why I ask my kids, what is God doing in your life? And Jesus is why I come out on a Wednesday night and pray. Jesus is why I serve and ignite. Jesus, Jesus is why I choose sometimes, sometimes I don't, but why I should choose to put myself second and put you first. Jesus, it's all centered around Jesus. So if I'm doing it for an organization or I'm doing it for my glory or for some earthly name, no, it's not going to work. But if it's about Jesus, if we care about Jesus, if we believe in Jesus, if we've allowed Jesus to transform us, we will be different. We will interact in this context the way we are called to interact in this context, but it must be about Jesus, right? That's it. What did this result in? Their belief in Jesus? Unity. Unity. I know I have it in the main set, but I want to emphasize this word. They were together. This doesn't mean just physically. They were unified. There's an emphasis here on unity that expresses itself in practical ways. This was not a shallow fellowship in Acts 2. There was depth to their relationships. They loved each other. They deferred to one another. This is hard, right? This is hard. It's hard. I'm selfish. So are you. I mean, it's hard. I'm proud. So are you. Put ourselves second. Henry Nouwen, I love this quote, (laughs) church is a place where the person you least want to be, or least want to live with, always lives. (laughs) Like, there's people that bother me, yep, and that's good, and that's good, because I'm about Jesus, we can put up with each other. They're characterized by unity, they were characterized by generous care. So you're in perfect verbs here. They were selling. They were distributing. This indicates ongoing activity. They're motivated above all by the needs of others. They didn't hoard for themselves, which, by the way, right, teaching the teachings of Jesus, 
Jesus spoke in Luke 12 of not hoarding, not building bigger barns. To use my possessions as resources to love others. It's not for myself. As any had need, they gave as any had need. Which, by the way, this indicates that they didn't sell everything all at once. This was an ongoing process. As people had need, people stepped up, even to the point of personal sacrifice. And by the way, this isn't like an early form of communism or socialism. People try to say that sometimes. No, that's not what this was. It didn't all move into a commune. Right? We see right here, they met in each other's houses. They obviously didn't sell their houses. They still had them. <laughs> but they had a sensitivity to use their resources to serve one another. We see this in 2 Corinthians 8. It expanded beyond the early church, right? or beyond the church in Jerusalem there. This is the church in Macedonia. This is on another continent. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians, they gave out of their poverty. Out of their extreme poverty, they gave. They had a sensitivity to their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem, and, and they gave. You modeled that so well over the past couple weeks. $33,000, are you kidding me? Giving. Had brothers and sisters over the course of the year in December, people coming up and saying, Here, here's, here's a check. Can we distribute this to help people in need? Like, that's, that's it. My resources are to help one another. Thank you for caring about Milan, Italy, and exhibiting this kind of love and care. Continue to have a right orientation towards things. Be motivated by generosity, not materialism. Don't be distracted by worldly possessions. View your possessions as resources. That's what they did. R. Kent Hughes writes this in his commentary. Fellowship cost something in the early church. In contrast to our use of the word fellowship today, fellowship is not just a sentimental feeling of oneness. It is not punch and cookies. It does not take place simply because we are in the church hall. Fellowship comes through giving. True fellowship costs. So many people never know the joys of Christian fellowship because they have never learned to give themselves away. They visit a church or small study group with an eye only for their own needs, hardly aware of others, and go away saying there's no fellowship there. The truth is we'll have fellowship only when we make it a practice to reach out to others and give something of ourselves. Being part of the church costs something. Biblical community costs something. It does that's okay. Church cost my Savior his life. It's worth sacrificing for. So kind of summing it all up here. We must be all in. It's the nature of devotion. Expanded. uh, The nature of devotion here at the, the close of this passage is expanded. Luke restates it a little bit for us. Persisting together. They stuck with each other. They kept showing up. They didn't leave one another. You've heard me talk about this before. It's so, you know, when I moved to Grand Rapids, there was a little bit of culture shock and a lot of reasons. But one of them is I grew up in Massachusetts. I had a lot of problems in the church there, so I'm not just romanticizing it. But one thing that didn't happen, you thought long and hard, ironically, and you've heard me share this before, my my family ended up leaving the church I, I grew up in. We drove 40 minutes to the next one. There was a couple others within like maybe 30 minutes or so. One of them was across the river, and you had to deal with the drawbridge going up all the time. And, you know, that was kind of a pain to get to. And then the barges would hit it all the time and knock it and be stuck up. And, you know, so uh, it, it, all to say, it was a challenge. You're like, I just got to deal with it. I can't just run. We're there this, on my sabbatical. I remember my kids saying, we're driving around, and my kids noticed. They're like, Dad, they're like, there's like no churches out here. 
I'm like, I know, right? And they're like, the ones we do see, they're the old white New England buildings, and half of them have rainbow flags out front. I'm like, yeah, it's, it's sad. It's a dark place. That was one of the valuable lessons I learned. And one of the challenges in that, some people just stayed in the same church, stayed mad at each other for 50 years, and that's not good either. <laughs> but, but you learned. Stay together. Stay together. Persist together. They did this in multiple ways. Day by day, they met in the temple. Acts 5, 12 um, later tells us they met in Solomon's colonnade. Josephus describes this for us. It was 650 feet long, 50 feet wide, and 43 feet high. Big auditorium. They met. They gathered formally. They continued to do this. And listen, they're not necessarily saying, they're not necessarily saying that every believer gathered every day, but it does seem to indicate that every day that there were gatherings going on. And it was a priority. It was a priority. One commentator says it's not impossible to assume that they did meet daily at certain times to worship God. Most likely, if they did, it was at the 3 o'clock time in the afternoon in, in Jerusalem, where it was kind of the common prayer time. Either way, it's about prioritizing being together. They had informal gatherings. This was life, right? They met, they broke bread in people's homes, extended beyond just the temple. But here's the thing, these gatherings are still characterized by Christ-centeredness. It says they praised God. This is what sets our fellowship apart from unbelievers. I'm not saying we don't get together, and it's not bad to talk about the weather and, and football. I, I, you're gonna, I'm going to talk about the Red Sox. We get together, with you, right? Uh, we talk about those things. But still, there's something that characterizes our fellowship that's different from cheers, right? We're, we're going to praise God together. We're going to talk about spiritual things. And here's the thing. This is how believers, especially in the early church, you go from 120 to 3,000. There's a lot of getting to know each other that needs to happen, right? But this is how it happened. This is how those bonds were forged. And let's, let's be honest. This is awkward. Like, let's try this when we go downstairs in a few minutes. Sit with someone who you don't know. Awkward. It's going to be awkward. I don't know what to talk about with this person. Awkward. So you can just acknowledge that right away. Hey, this is awkward. <laughs> now let's talk. Let's get to know each other, right? That's what they did. That's what they did. That's how needs became known. We see here that they received food with glad and generous hearts, or sincerity of hearts. They found joy in each other. They didn't take each other for granted. They found joy in each other. Remember the Schellenbergs a year or so ago, they, like, you know, it was during the COVID time, and they're like, man, it's just been hard for people to get together. They hosted at Christmas time a scavenger hunt. That was fun. We just kind of did the scavenger hunt thing with them. We went running all over the place, and we got together afterwards, we roasting marshmallows out in the backyard, and like, this is joy. Experiencing being together. Hmm. The kiss event. Right? Stuff like that. Get together. Appreciate one another, the gift that one another is. Again, the, the point of all this isn't to guilt you into the church attendance. You're like, well, you failed. <laughs> it's not the point. The point's not to check off the boxes. The point is this is a gift from God. He's given us for our own spiritual well-being and for our effectiveness and power in the world. A couple of quotes here we'll close with, maybe. Trevin Wax, author, writes this. The author of Hebrews clues us in. Being with your brothers and sisters is where you are able to stir one another up to love and good deeds. It's the place where the confession of hope is celebrated and put before you and where you are urged to cling to it tightly. It's not just the content you receive every week that's so formative. It's the act of being together and making the Lord's family your priority. It's similar to a family that gathers every evening for a meal. The value is not in the specifics of your conversation, but the very act of demonstrating your love for each other. We don't go to church because of guilt. We are the church because of grace. And then Bonhoeffer, 
By the way, Life Together is one of the best books ever written about the church, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He writes this, it is true, of course, that was, is, I think I messed something up there, <laughs> an unspeakable gift of God for the lonely individual is easily disregarded and trodden underfoot by those who have the gift every day. In other words, we can take the church for granted. It's easily forgotten that the fellowship of Christian brethren is a gift of grace, a gift of the kingdom of God, that any day may be taken from us, that the time that still separates us from utter loneliness may be brief indeed, right? Speaking from experience, taken from us, living in Germany, Nazi Germany. He understood what it means to all of a sudden not have this. Therefore, let him who until now has had the privilege of living in a common Christian life. I love that, common, mundane. Living a common Christian life with other Christians. Praise God's grace from the bottom of his heart. Let him thank God on his knees and declare it is grace, nothing but grace, that we are allowed to live in community with the Christian brothers. Committed to one another. Our Western individualism cuts at the heart of what the community of the church is supposed to be. They committed themselves to this. Griffin, come on up. We're going to sing here in just a minute. They committed themselves to this. And here again is the effect. Effective witness. They found favor. I could read Keith's second email to you. Keith said, uh, the mayor of, of Milan is favorably disposed to them, is pulling for them to win this bid because they've had interactions with him. And he actually uses the terminology, we found favor with the, the mayor of Milan. It's because the church is doing and being what it's supposed to be. By the way, this ideal in Acts 2, Luke goes on to share with it. It's not perfect. We're going to see as Acts continues to unfold that there's problems in the church, and that's okay. That's part of the deal. We're sinful people gathered together. My son Zach, for reasons unknown to me, actually I think I maybe figured it out a little bit, he asked me to play Rocket League with him all the time. I stink at Rocket League. Caleb Simon's sitting down here laughing at me in first service. <laughs> I stink at it. But he still asked me to play. We played five times last night. We lost four of them. I'm a dead weight. He loses ranking. But we kept playing. Zach's like, Dad, Dad, me and you, we got to get the dub together. We got to get the dub together. We got to get a dub together. He wants to do it with me. He wants to win with me. <laughs> the dead weight. I see you laughing at me, Simon. Right. I want to win with you. I'm dead weight sometimes. You're dead. We're imperfect. I'm going to lose a game sometimes because of me. I'm going to lose a game sometimes because of you. But I want to win with you. And I want to be devoted to you. I want you to be devoted to one another. And we say, hey, we're imperfect, and we struggle through this sometimes, and we get some goals scored on us sometimes, but I want to win with you, and I want to do it over and over and over and over again. Because doing it together as the church is nothing like it. We have that level of commitment to one another.